Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. I try to compartmentalize the different functions and roles that I have and and within them I have a like a sort of prioritization list of tasks that need to be done or work or projects that need to be done. Um, but also I I really like to zoom out every now and then and, and just get some perspective on the work that I'm doing because you can get carried away and get in the weeds on one project and you've got four other things that need to be done at the same timeline, right? So if you if you zoom out a little bit, it, it helps me personally get that perspective that I need to juggle that. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion, and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change, or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hirefall what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hirefall.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefall.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Welcome to On Target. Today's guest is Bill Rufo a man who spent over a decade developing high-performance sales teams and currently drives revenue growth as a CRO at the IT sourcing company, Upper Edge. Bill's a big believer in building strong customer relationships, so I'm really excited to hear how his customer-centric approach fuels his innovative sales and marketing strategies. Bill, welcome to On Target. Thank you, Alex. I'm happy to be here. I'm honored. Pleasure. Absolutely. Now, Bill, salespeople need an elevator pitch in their day today, and I'm sure you pitch your company day in and day out. So if you had an elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, tell us how you'd introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Bill Rufo. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Upper Edge. Uh, Upper Edge, as you mentioned, is an IT advisory services firm. So we focus on uh, IT uh, sourcing negotiation strategy, cost optimization and project advisory services. Um, In revenue, I'm responsible for all all aspects of that. So that's sales, marketing, customer success, as you mentioned, uh, revenue operations, et cetera. So, you know, I started a little bit of an unconventional path to where I am today. I I actually started in the architecture business and ended up having a career change at 30 and got into sales. Uh, I'm sure we can dig into that a little bit later, but got into sales back in 2008. And I really, really love building teams specifically super passionate about helping others build, you know, their, their career progression. You know, it's really what drives me in terms of a sales uh, perspective. In addition to that, I'm a, a husband of 15 years, a father to three girls. I'm a huge Formula One racing fan, a bit of a golf nut, and uh, I love to travel whenever I can. So that's me. Awesome. Love it. We've got to unpack the architect <laughs> into career shift at age 30. So just talk to us a bit about your start and when that transition kicked into play. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose I can go all the way back to college. I, so I grew up building houses. I used to, I used to frame houses, uh, you know, partly to pay for college. And I was always able to understand what the architect was trying to do as it doesn't always apply in the field. Right. And so I was able to translate the, the, 
the blueprints to what the project actually entailed. And I went to undergrad actually and studied philosophy. So it took a, took a little bit of a different track in uh, undergrad because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I uh, really loved that degree, but the job market for philosophy is kind of tough these days. So decided to go to graduate school and, and, and become an architect. I, I was uh, working full-time during the day at an architecture firm as a junior architect while I went to school full-time at night to go through the architecture, Masters of Architecture program. And quite frankly, it is a really, really tough uh, grind. It was probably doing 100, 120-hour weeks in, in that workload and, and really ended up falling out of love with the profession. And I, I can get into some of the details as to why, but Ironically, at the same time, my fiance at the time, who was obviously now my wife, uh, was in sales. And I used to start sort of digging into her deals and asking, well, why did you take it that way? Well, what about the customer? What, what were they thinking here? And, and I was really always curious about the solution that was being provided from a sales perspective. And I think it's fair to say I got on her case a little bit. And she said, why don't you just do this? Right. So uh, that's actually how I dipped into, into sales for the first time back in 2008. Uh, and sort of worked my way into uh, insurance sales. I actually started selling uh, voluntary benefits, life insurance, disability, et cetera, 100% commission only, which was a really wild way to cut my teeth into the sales world. Really learned a lot uh, you know, about business doing that way. And then sort of from there, sort of progressed into technology. So we've got your wife to thank <laughs> for the fact that we're on this call right now. Yeah, that, that's really sure. cool. That's really, really cool. I'd love to just take a moment to go back to that first role that you took on that commission only role, because I'm trying to imagine what your mindset was like at that time, right? You'd you'd obviously given up quite a lot. You'd had this big career shift. And some people might feel that at age 30, that they potentially missed the boat or certainly maybe feeling like you're a bit late to the game. So walk us into the mindset of Bill at that time, commission only role. Just talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a, a really good point. I did feel like I was late to the game, uh, especially I had some friends that were in in the business, and and at thirty, you know that that first few years, even a decade out of college, you learn a ton in sales, and and I sort of was late to it, and so I kind of rolled into this this plan where I said, all right, well, what's my short term goal in sales? What's my long, medium term goal, and where do I want to be in a decade? Right, and so. I had an opportunity to get into sales. It was a very challenge, challenging approach. And uh, when you think about it from a commission-only perspective, and I know we could probably get into some pipe generation conversations later and the need for that, but when you're in that role, you really have to focus on on continually building that book of business for yourself. But yeah, it was it was definitely on my mind, but I just really thought about it uh, strategically and, and said, right, well, what do I want out of this profession? I am leaving one that was that I had already been in for about nine years at that point. So I really, really had to spend a lot of time thinking about, well, where are my skill sets? Where do I think I want to progress to? What do I need to learn to get to where I want to be? And I really just kind of mapped it out. Uh, so I, ha- I had a lot of short-term goals and a lot of long-term goals that I, I wanted to keep in mind as I was progressing in my sales career. That's how I thought about it when I first started. It's really interesting. I often talk about how when someone's back is against the wall, it's pretty incredible what they can go on to achieve. And I'm th- sure you had an element of a bit of a chip on your shoulder to go out there and really move your career at a level of pace. And, and that's been able to happen for you. Uh, but by having your back a bit against the wall, you're able to find your way forward and uh, achieve some incredible things. 
I do want to spend some time now and shift gears on the pipeline generation side of the house. Sure. Uh, it sounds like you had to, uh, you know, be right in the trenches doing a, a commission only role. So tell us a bit more about that experience and some of the key principles that you found to be incredibly important when it comes to pipe generation. Yeah, at that point, it was really interesting because I was selling both B2B and B2C. So it was a really interesting dynamic. And I, what I learned was, quite frankly, how to communicate with people and the different modes of communication. So both kind of understanding how how you're discussing and how you process the conversation and how you're thinking about uh, my uh, approach to what I'm, what I'm offering. And you know, I, I was really intentional about going through that and what it actually meant. And you combine that with scientifically sort of backing into the numbers and where I needed to get to based on projections, et cetera. I built out a plan. Um, it's kind of that sort of art and science that I know a lot of people talk about when we talk about sales and, and um, you can apply that to building out a pipeline, right? There is science and numbers behind what it takes to actually build out a pipeline, but you also you need to get in the conversation and be real and be empathetic with people to actually build a pipeline that is genuine and sustainable. That was kind of my first foray and approach into how I think about generating pipeline. I always knew it was going to be sort of the lifeblood to you know, consistency and quality of business that not only I wanted to generate, but I also want to deliver as a, as a product perspective to the customers, through the customer's lens. But that's how I sort of approach it. I'd love to now fast forward into how you've been approaching that as you built and scaled teams, because I'm sure you can agree that for certainly some salespeople, pipeline generation is the the less glamorous part of the job, but it's an absolutely necessary part of the job, as you describe the lifeblood. So as you've now had to build and scale teams over time, how have you created a culture around pipeline generation that means that people are, are committed to doing it, can do it consistently and sustainably over time? So communication's big. I talk a lot in a group setting about pipeline and the needs uh, to generate pipeline and the different types of pipelines that are generated. And I, I like doing it in a group fashion because I like to share ideas on what people have had success doing uh, down from uh, you know a sequence of, uh, outbounding sequence approach down to the very messaging itself. Prospecting is always one of those things where messaging resonates different to one person that it does another and and you can have the same relative message and it just lands differently and so you know doing that as a team and and sort of getting that consensus of uh, and group think about what's been working and different strategies so that we can go at it as a team i think pipe gen you know obviously from an individual contributor perspective is really important to to everybody's book of business but you need to think about it as a group because we're all having multiple conversations with a similar audience at the same time and if you can work together to figure out, you know, what we're trying to say, how we're saying it effectively, if we are, or we, we're, or we're not, and how to improve on those things. And, and then I, I, I parlay that with, quite frankly, just, just trying to instill this level of genuine curiosity. I don't think about prospecting as necessarily a, a task people begrudgingly have to do. You really have to be interested in understanding why someone would want to start a conversation with you. And it starts with believing in what you're selling in the first place. But also understanding who, who you're selling to and why. Customers, generally speaking, have a need. There's lots of products out in the marketplace. And if they don't know why or you can't connect with them as to why you're syncing up or want to have a conversation in the first place, it becomes very difficult. But that initial approach to being generally curious about what does this company, what are they going through right now versus what this company is going through? It's 
to me, that was always a, a way to make it less sort of mundane, less a project or a task that had to be done versus somebody wanted to do to really drive their business going forward. That belief in the, the product, the service, the company is just so incredibly important because what you tend to find is when you have true belief in what you're representing, you must feel like you have a duty to reach out to people, to let them know about what it is that you have to offer or to really, first of all, unpack their challenges and see if you can be helpful. So taking pride in uh, who you are, what you represent, incredibly important and well worth taking the time to really look into any company that you're considering to make sure that there is that level of passion and belief in the company. Well, it's quite frankly, it's going to, it's going to read if you don't, right? If you don't believe in what you're talking about, it's going to read on, on your, not only your prospecting calls, but even in, in whatever engagements you have going on. So it's really critical. Completely. Now let's talk a bit about, uh, Bill, just the premise of building go-to-market teams. As a CRO, you mentioned having customer success under your remit, marketing, some of the other functions that go into any go-to-market operation. So talk to us about some of your big pillars as it relates to being a leader across multiple different teams, multiple different departments, and getting the whole ship to work in harmony. I mentioned it before, communication is definitely at the top of that list. I think it's really important to establish open plans, communication, what different projects uh, other groups are working on. It seems like everybody these days, no matter what your role is, you're, you're probably doing uh, too much right now with not enough time. And it's really critical for, one, setting clear expectations with the group you're working with, but also to roll those understandings out to every other department that may be sort of ancillary or working side by side. So, I, you know, from a go-to-market perspective, obviously, when you have alignment between, you know, those, those go-to-market teams, marketing, sales, business development, et cetera, but how they communicate internally to other departments is, is kind of critical too. That's a, that's a huge core fundamental building block to really having any sort of go-to-market success. And of course, the expectations, not only of each individual player within those, those remits, but also the company as a whole. How does this how does what we're all doing in our individual roles that we're playing affect the larger sum and how we're actually going to market? You know, I love Daniel Pink's book, uh, To Sell is to Human, right? Because we're, we're all in sales to a degree. We just have different roles and different mediums of doing it. And even when our delivery team is talking to customers, they're selling as well, right? And, and it's, they're going to market with, with the furthering of the brand. And so making sure that all those pieces of the puzzle know what the other pieces are doing and where, the, where everybody's trying to go is... is super important to, to the foundation or the fundamentals of that process, for sure. You've spoken a lot about the importance of communication. And it's also something that I hear a ton is one of the biggest challenges for other CROs or other um, people in a similar role to yourself. So I'd love to know if there's any tactical things that you've been able to do or implement to really help to bridge that communication gap, especially in scenarios where many other leaders have a real challenge with that. There's the technology communication channels that, that are out there, the slacks of the world, teams, et cetera, where it can, can streamline sort of different channels of communications or different types of communications. But I actually, you know, I think sometimes depending on the role, it can come down to explaining to somebody how you like to receive information, right? Because then, then you can literally have when those interactions happen, they can be a lot crisper, more concise and more efficient, right? So as an example, so I'm relatively new to the business here and, and with my direct team, I, I made it pretty clear how I like to receive information. And that's sort of 
tell me what's happening and then give me the details following as opposed to the opposite, right? Where I don't need this long story first. I, I want you to get to it so I can then process, right? Not everybody thinks like that though. So it's, it's really critical when you're talking to different folks in the business, how they like to in, in actually receive or send information. And I think getting to that level can often help a lot of the downstream communication strategies and plans that people have. And, you know, I think not enough people spend enough time doing that. I've worked at several organizations that have gone through some of those communication discovery exercises that people have, uh, where you, you literally have the, the, the blocks on your desk to talk about how people communicate and what their methods are. And, you know, I pay attention to that and I think it matters when, it, when you're talking through communication. So from a tactical perspective, that's actually one area that I think is important. I'd be curious to know how you sustain that at scale. I'm, I'm not just trying to put myself in the mind of a CRO with a, you know, 300, 500 person org or, or beyond. Are, are there ways that you think that you can retain that balance of having the ability to just ask someone, what is your preferred communication style? H how do you do that at scale? Have you thought through any um, scenarios where whether you need to do that in a group setting or whether there's any, again, tactics around that? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I rule it out is is that there are multiple modes of communication that you have in different cadences with individuals or groups and or both, right? So, for example, um, I have one-on-ones with, with all the sales reps and, and marketing folks weekly, right? In addition to that, there are group go-to-marketing meetings, right? So, sometimes it becomes sort of tactics through practice where you're talking to people and, and actually working through the communication and even coaching as you go, right? As opposed to delivering a, a said message or receiving a message from a group perspective. And I think having multiple types of touch points on a regular basis kind of instills the fundamentals of the, of the communication process that you, that you want. And over time, those become really baked into the process. Um, and again, but articulating what that process is ahead of time and the vision so that people can get on board and be a part of it is helpful because if you have detractors from that process, it becomes becomes hard to move forward as a group. So I, I think implementing multiple different means to, to get there is is one of the pieces that I try to implement to make sure that it it is scalable because after that sort of table has been set, so to speak, it becomes a launching pad for scalability. That vision piece is really important. And I've certainly found that when you create a grand vision that really energizes people, it, it helps to create groundswell around a unified way of going to market, a unified way of communicating, thinking, operating. And as much as it's important to have diversity of thought, you still need something that unifies people and a great vision that's well thought through that energizes people is a really great way to do that. So love that point. Want to fast forward now into operational excellence and learning a bit more about uh, if we peeled back the layers on Bill's calendar, how you really structure your week uh, for success. You've spoken about the one to ones with all the members of the sales team. Uh, help us uh, unlock what what is your calendar look like? Yeah, you don't want to see that. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot. It's um, it, you know, I I think like everybody else, not, not just folks in my role, but calendars are, are becoming very, very overwhelming at this point, right? And so I think prioritizing and structuring activities around what needs to be done uh, is critical to that. For me personally, like I mentioned before, like I love to set really short micro, medium-term goals and long-term goals to get things accomplished with what I need to do. So I'll map out my time uh, and I do it on a regular basis. I'll even revisit during during the day if I need to on 
what needs to be prioritized and when I think I can actually get it done. I also, you know, in this world of, of like sort of post-COVID remote work, it becomes even more important to find pockets of time that you know are efficient. So for example, as much as I don't necessarily like to get up early, I'm actually quite efficient at the 5 a.m. to 6.30 window in the morning. And so when I know I have a lot to do, I'll carve out time and, and just crank through that work because I'm not, there's no interruptions. I, I can just focus as opposed to maybe three to four o'clock window, which is different. So I think understanding also what your window of, of efficiency is, is, is really helpful to, to not just mapping out a calendar, but how to do so effectively. I'll also say like, on one hand, it's easy to map out a calendar. It's another to actually execute on what's in your calendar because it's very easy to just move a meeting in your calendar. So it, it becomes critical to the follow through on the expectations, even the ones you set for yourself, sort of those those daily goals and levels of accomplishment that even subconsciously we might not even be thinking about, but they matter. And so having a list of, you know, an external list that I do, even a on paper to-do list, in addition to my calendar, kind of what helps me manage a lot of that. Because as you know, you know, you can get pulled in a lot of different directions and you can't always say yes to every one of them because you're dropping something else or possibly two other things uh, to do it. So it becomes critical to prioritize through that. And how do you prioritize, Bill? As you mentioned, you know, all of these different conflicting uh, things coming at you, cross-departmental, how does Bill prioritize? So there's kind of two ways, right? I have a, um, I try to compartmentalize the different functions and roles that I have. And, and within them, I have a, like a sort of prioritization list of tasks that need to be done or work or projects that need to be done. Um, but also I, I really like to zoom out every now and then and, and just get some perspective on the work that I'm doing because you can get carried away and get in the weeds on one project and you've got four other things that need to be done at the same timeline, right? So if you, if you zoom out a little bit, it helps me personally get that perspective that I need to juggle that. It's tough though. I'm not gonna lie. It's, it's a, uh, when you have a lot of different tasks and, and people you're working with, it becomes a challenge. So it's something that I'm constantly trying to improve and get better. It's, it's not something that I have nailed down to a science and I'll, I'll say, yeah, you, everyone else needs to repeat this. I'm constantly working through my own efficiencies and getting better at it. I often say team and customers first, everything else after that. And that's been incredibly helpful for me because whenever there's been other conflicting priorities coming in or, well, not necessarily priorities, but other conflicting things coming in, it's made it really easy to prioritize because I'm like, is it team? Is it customer? If it's not, it can probably wait until a slot that I've got for later in the day or another day. I was wondering if for you, do you have any semblance of a of an order that allows you to quickly make fast and effective decisions about what needs to be dealt with now versus what can wait? Yeah, and it's just, just that, right? A customer comes first in our business. We really have to support the needs of what we're doing for our customers. Though sometimes you can get double and triple booked, but if it's a relatively important engagement with the customer, all of my team members know that if I do happen to move a meeting that they're either individually or, or, or multiple people are a part of, I'm going to make it up to them and, and I'm committed to their development and their time. But everyone on my team knows and feels the same way that customers come first in our business. So it's kind of the stated, understood uh, approach to to how we all organize our times and, and where we find value because our job is to ultimately deliver that. And so that that's definitely a layer that comes first. I have things in my calendar that I will prioritize for myself. Um, and I've always told all of, all of the, the people in my org and on my teams that let me know and I'll move something for you. And we can talk about the level of importance too, right? Because they all, they have busy calendars too. And it, it, it's kind of that symbiotic 
relationship where we talk about prioritization together and, and I'll say, yep, put on my calendar, I'll move that. So it's that that's part of the communication piece as well. You'd mentioned earlier when you were talking about your operating rhythm in a way that the, the early starts and sometimes getting uh, even more work done before everyone else is awake in a way. I was wondering, do you have a, a routine, almost like a personal operating rhythm for specifically what you do in that morning segment and maybe something that you do at night? Is there an operating rhythm that you abide by? So generally speaking, I start my days off trying to wake up relatively slowly with a cup of coffee and I read the news. It's generally speaking the first thing I do. I spend at least a half an hour a day reading the news, just kind of understanding what's going on around, whether it's business, uh, all over the world, et cetera, right? I just like, I'm generally curious about about everything. So I like to understand what's going on. And then it gives me, it allows me time to not just immediately jump right into something and, and get my grounding, if you will, and for me, with the with three kids, I'm often spending a, a bit of time in the morning trying to get them off to school. So I try to juggle that that little window in immediately after my my coffee and news, and then I just get right at it because I've already thought about what my day should look like and how it's going to be scheduled ahead of time. So that's that's part of that planning out that calendar for the week. Uh, that does shift around occasionally. I know that it's already organized based on how I'm likely going to approach that day. So it's it's easier for me to to hop into those calls or those customer meetings with it being sort of partially mapped out. So that's that's typically the routine to my day. It varies depending on certain timing of meetings or other projects that have to be prioritized about that. But that's generally speaking how I run run my mornings and my afternoons. I was equally curious to know if there's any staples that you've had that have helped you to mitigate things like burnout and anything that you do to really keep yourself healthy and, and energized throughout the working week. I, I talk a lot about the importance of exercise and um, meditation and journaling and these types of things, which have been really important for me. But for you beyond the coffee in the morning, <laughs> is there anything else that uh, helps to keep you going? I'll categorize it to two different compartments here, right? One is the physical, right? So I think exercise is obviously important from a stress reduction perspective or just clarity. I'll sometimes go for a run at lunchtime, right? I'll take my lunch break and I'll go for a run and, and some folks will say, well, how do you have time for that? I actually, I find running, I think a lot while I run and I come up with, I brainstorm and I come up with ideas while I'm running probably to get me think about not the fact that I'm running and, and, and don't want to be, right? But it, it becomes actually a, a really productive session for me to get through and also naturally provides a, a physical benefit from a health perspective. But I honestly, I, I'm a lifelong learner. I love listening to podcasts, reading books, reading articles or watching webinars from other thought leaders around uh, the industry. I really feed off of of that sort of critical thinking component, probably stemming back from my philosophy uh, background. But it, that's actually what gives me a lot of, of energy to think about how I'm going to attack the business and, and you know, combining that with my, my sort of sense of general curiosity around things. I, I find a level of energy, if you will, and, and passion for what I do. And I feed off a lot of others and, and hearing that discussion and that debate and dialogue, et cetera. So that's, that's the uh, sort of other side of the coin for how I, how I find myself energized for what I do. So all of the above plus a coffee in the morning. That's right. You're good to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Note taken. Note taken. Now let's talk a little bit more about closing business and winning deals and, and some of the meat and the bones of, of, of the role or certainly for your field teams out there. I'd love to know more about actually what a typical sales cycle looks like in your role. What you do is uh, got a slight variation to a lot of my background and I'd love to just learn a bit more about 
a general sales cycle, some of the things that one would expect? It's really not, even from all my my years in the SaaS world, it's it's not entirely, from fundamentally, it's not all that different in terms of the different stages of the cycle you go through. Specifically from the advisor perspective, there are a lot of internal stakeholders involved, maybe more so than there would be from, a say, a SaaS platform, right? Where you may just have a, a sales rep and occasionally an engineer hop on a call and then you can close out the deal yourself. There's a lot of people involved uh, internally from an advisory perspective because they are the IP, they are the product essentially. And so there's a lot of really structuring and ownership of both that internal process overlapped with the external one. Right. So we use a lot of uh, mutual action planning, et cetera, to work through the deal cycle through the normal stages of progression, but also architecting, pardon the pun, but the, the, the internal and external communication strategy regarding the engagement itself together. So we all have deals that are probably extended cycle. I mean, we see deals that are 60 days to 120 days, but we've, we've all dealt with them that are a year long. Right. And so really understanding the components of the deal and the conversations that that need to to happen to to move and progress them through the different stages it's important one of the things i i like to implement when we're talking about deals and moving them through a cycle is is quite frankly talking about why a customer is not going to buy from you like sales reps and, and individual contributors have a tendency to list out all the reasons why they're buying and prove the roi to that point but oftentimes don't ask okay that's great but why aren't why wouldn't they buy Right? What are you missing? What are you not thinking about? So almost thinking about it from from their lens a little bit more and that perspective can help either shorten the cycle or maybe answer questions that they haven't fully told you what all the questions are. Getting to really think about the deal from, from a, a more holistic perspective where hopefully eliminates a lot of the rosy glasses that people can sometimes get when we're moving deals along, even late stage deals. So that's kind of how I, how I approach that. And how intentional do you feel a seller can be with a question of that nature? Do you see a scenario where salespeople could and should actually take that type of question directly to a customer to say, hey, why haven't you bought or why why would you not be compelled to buy? Or do you see that as more so a conversation you should be having internally with leadership as part of a deal review, for example? Yeah, it's so it's definitely the latter. You should be having that conversation as part of a deal review. I do, though, think that many, many times and maybe more so than than implemented commonly, it can be had with the customer because it. I don't think it has to be a, a sort of combative or, or argumentative position, right? You're really helping the customer try and solve a problem. And if you're not helping them challenge even themselves on, on that or understanding where the deal lies, because oftentimes they're not the only stakeholder, obviously. And so sometimes those challenges can actually help move things along because you're ultimately trying to help them as well, right? So I, I don't oftentimes, as long as it's formulated correctly or framed in the appropriate tone, I think it's one that quite frankly needs to be asked more. And if it's truly a, a mutual sell and, and, and purchase, I think it should be welcomed with customers. This is a powerful point, Bill, because I often see with sellers this reluctance to, I guess, quote unquote, ask the difficult questions. And that in itself can really um, cannibalize someone's opportunity from helping their customer. You've got to have line of sight to how do I get to the finish line? Because once you get to the finish line, you're now in a position where you can drive transformative value for your customer. And sometimes asking these types of questions that are a little bit more thought through and the reality is comp your competition probably isn't asking these types of questions. It For gives sure. you a leg up. 
it's something a little bit different and it gives you that line of sight to the finish line, which ultimately means you can drive great value for your customer. So uh, an important point there. I don't think anybody should try to uh, drive a square peg into a round hole. And I don't think customers want that type of product either because it probably won't work once it's implemented, right? So I, I think it's fair that that old saying, we have to earn the right. I, I believe you have the right if you're in the conversation, particularly if it's a mutual discussion, right? So 100%, I, I, I feel like there should be confidence in asking that question, in trying to deliver the results that come from the answer to that question. Yeah, 100%. Got it. Now, we've spoken about the importance of customer centricity. We're speaking about asking some challenging questions. Are there any core beliefs or core principles for you that are really important when it comes to engaging in an opportunity or a deal? It might be frameworks. It might be a particular way of thinking. Just talk to us about the things that really underpin how you go to market. Empathy is really a a core tenant to both the team itself and to the customer, right? If you're really trying to implement a product and solution that's going to drive value to the customer, you really have to be genuine and understanding and want to understand how it's going to be implemented. You know, I know empathy has been a a common buzzword uh, as of late, but it's probably for a reason, right? It matters and, and customers know that and can sense it. So you really have to be genuine in the desire to approach a customer with a conversation. Um, that's, that's like first and foremost, I, I, I don't, it comes back into believing not only what, what the company is trying to deliver, but, but you actually wanting to provide a solution to them. That's really ultimately what probably underpins the majority of the conversations that, and an approach that I like to have for customers. Again, I got into this business because I love solving those problems and I, 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 whether it's through technology, through advisory service, et cetera, I love solving those business problems for customers and that approach to it is really what keeps it, uh, I think, on the right track and, and it sets the tone for for how we should approach our, our business. Because we can ultimately serve them as well as we can if we do that. Absolutely. Now, it'd be great if you could talk to us about a deal that, that sticks out in your memory that's got a key takeaway. It's quite common people tell me about their first deal or their biggest deal, but uh, any deal that you have in your mind that sticks out, uh, walk us through a key takeaway lesson or learning. Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to my last point about asking questions, uh, maybe some of the hard questions. And it is, you know, I think every rep, an individual contributor or leader has probably had a deal like this. It's not all that uncommon, but usually stings the most when they're really large ones. But um, where you have a deal that is even late stage and to the point where they've even given you a verbal or it's like the phase two of another project that they've already done. And, you know, last minute they pull the rug out from under you and we're not moving ahead with the project, right? And I've already committed it to the business. I'm on the hook for that one, right? It happened recently. And I think it's really important to take a look at that and examine that and 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 learn what you can from it is, did we ask the questions? Did we make assumptions that we we probably shouldn't have, right? Did we rely on those assumptions or or did we take for granted the verbal that we got and sort of sit back and take our foot off the gas a little bit? I think we've all been in a situation where we know deals aren't done until they're done. And even then they're not done, right? So it's one of those things that, that you just got to go back and, and reset your process and your, and your approach to, to the business. And um, it just came up recently. So that's why I was thinking about it. But it's not all that uncommon and people do it. But I think what you do with that information and how you, how you evolve as, as both a, a, an individual contributor or a leader and continue either working with that customer or somebody else is kind of the, the important piece there. So really kind of understanding that the takeaways and learnings from from that a loss like that is important. 
makes complete sense. Now, Bill, we've got to get your perspective on hiring the best talent. I'd love to just spend a, a few minutes just talking about some of the key principles behind your hiring criteria. You know, what do you tend to look out for and why? I'm a lifelong learner and I love I love trying to find other people who, who are in that bucket, whether they're genuinely curious or they're taking your extracurricular classes or reading lots of books, trying to to expand their their knowledge base because it's it's typically applied to the customer conversations when people are inherently like that. That's a really difficult thing to coach somebody to be more curious, to be more learned, right? And so it's I think it's one of those key elements that that you really look to try and find in people because I think I do believe it's going to really bring something to the table from a customer perspective that is just one of those intangibles. In addition to that, I know like I love sometimes you got to get scrappy and being gritty is a really important skill set to have, right? And so whether whether you want to sort of combination call it like resourcefulness or being being stick to itness, right? However you want to describe grit, that ability to keep going and persevere through things is something that I particularly like uh, look for and I think it's important trait to have in the in the sales profession uh, specifically. I mean, it's it's there's nothing easy about sales and you really need to have it to keep that going. Like I know salespeople can make a lot of money and that's that's a big driving force for others, but that's not it, right? You got to have something else driving you for it. And so having that innate sense of determination, those are two uh, big components. I also am uh, naturally, given all the coaching and development sort of conversations, uh, coachability is something that is huge for me. You know, it's very tough to have somebody who's stuck in their ways and really narrow with their vision of how they've done things in the past. I'm a big proponent of of failing because it means you're reaching beyond what your comfort is. It means you're trying new things and, and that's okay. So I look for that uh, and people who, who are comfortable being uncomfortable sometimes. And so those are kind of some of the core tenets of, of a person. I think skill sets and experience relative to sales practice is always important, but some of those can be taught. So depending on the circumstances of the situation, those are oh, sometimes even secondary, right? Because the overall attitude has got to be got to be up there and that the approach to business. You've mentioned quite a few intrinsic characteristics, right? Coachability, the, the mentality of that person, the character of that person. I'd love to get your perspective on just experience of someone. So uh, how much weight do you put on someone having had a previous track record of experience within the role that you're hiring for versus someone who has the aptitude, the mental fortitude, the desire, some of the other things that you've spoken about, you know, how do you weigh up two candidates that are, you know, strong in each of those respective areas? I mean, I think that sometimes gets gets broken down by the particular role and the the tenure and the level of complexity, right? So if you have a mid-market team versus enterprise or strategic team, right, sometimes the experience is going to weigh a little bit more heavily in that team than it's going to on a mid-market or an SMB team, right? Where for that role where they naturally or usually don't have the tenure, uh, you rely more on on that sort of intrinsic nature. And, you know, it's really tough for someone who hasn't had the experience in the super complex sale or super complex product to just jump right in what it means to be a, a strategic or enterprise seller. And so you really have to weigh circumstantial situations for, for that. They're both important and you just kind of weigh based on situational, you know, awareness. 
Makes uh, makes complete sense. Now, uh, as we move into the kind of last uh, couple of questions here, I'd love to just talk a bit about what drives you at this stage of your career, Bill. You've achieved a lot, gone through a career transition. You're now running multiple teams and, and departments. What is it that drives Bill at this stage? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to the comment I made before about building teams and some of the responsibilities I think that comes with leadership. And for me is I, I I love helping people progress in their careers. Right. And so if I'm working with a BDR who wants to become a sales rep or a sales rep, a mid-market who wants to be enterprise or a rep who wants to be, uh, go from individual contributor to a first time manager. Like I, I really love that conversation and I love outlining, okay, well, from my perspective, here are the things that either I look for, or I think you need to do and, and really helping people through. Cause I've, Partly because of my career, I've had a lot of different roles and a lot of different steps, industries, even industries, right? So I feel like if I can impart some of, of those lessons that I've learned to help others, quite frankly, even make some of the mistakes I didn't or not make the mistakes I didn't and work through their goals. I really am impassioned by that. I love it. Um, I think it's what helps drive me and why I probably got into leadership in the first place is because I, I, I think there's an inherent responsibility to lead, not just, you know, hey, we're going from 15 million to 50 million, right? But let me help you get better at being you, right? I, I love that. When you're passionate and purpose-driven like that, it's just an infinite fuel source, really, isn't it? It's it's just something that you can't get enough of and really helps to uh, motor you out of, the bed, uh, out of your bed uh, first thing in the morning. So I love to hear that. I've got one more question for you, Bill, yeah. uh, which is really what is the single best piece of advice that you have out there to any sales leader that is listening that wants to up-level in their career? Just be curious. Really go out there, own it, and and try to explore and expand, right? That's part of my my growing, constantly learning mentality. Just try and understand and be curious and really own it. I think a lot of good things will happen regardless of what your path may be if that's the approach that you can take with life. And it's, it's what I've done. Um, I've certainly made my mistakes, but that's one thing I can help. I think pe people can, can help move on in their careers if they approach life like that. To be curious and own it. What a way to end the episode. Have you enjoyed being on, Bill? I have. It's been great. I appreciate it, Alex. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.